Good morning, everyone. I uh, apologize for the rough voice today. I decided working outside of my yard was a good idea yesterday. Turns out perhaps it was not such a good idea after all. So I don't know. Maybe I'll listen back to this. Maybe I have a better radio voice now, Ian. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's very compelling. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how that works out. I may have to be, have a perpetual cold or something <laughs> going forward. But uh, for the audience, uh, my guest today is, is Ian Martin. Welcome, Ian. Hi. Hi, Kurt. Good morning. I, I guess I could introduce you as uh, former and perhaps present photojournalist and photographer. Uh, Definitely general. present, yes. Uh, all, all of the above. All of the above. Uh, and member of the Planning Commission in his hometown of uh, Carmel-by-the-Sea in, in California. Uh, That's right. Ian and, and I were having a conversation earlier, or I guess later in the week last week, about the whole dynamic of being a planning commissioner and whether or not that had anything to do with your research on our topic today. I'm not really sure, but at least there was an application you found there. So, Yes, definitely. Well, that, it, it definitely had a great deal to do with my interest in the subject and just learning to understand about how people who live in Carmel-by-the-Sea come to understand certain parts of the town and how we, how we learn to define and understand areas, neighborhoods and whatnot. And um, there's, a, there's an area in Carmel-by-the-Sea known as the Golden Rectangle, which is you know, a really interesting, compelling name. And, um, you know, and as, when I joined the Planning Commission, it got me thinking and wondering about how that part of town came to be known that way, especially since it's not much of a rectangle. Uh, two of the sides are straight lines, but two of the other sides, as is commonly defined, are very curvy and not rectilinear at all. And that inspired me to, to start into my research to see if this is always the way that people in Carmel understood this area of town. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about about background, uh, you, you and I have shared some information about, about your background, and uh, of course I was in, always intrigued when people either are or have spent time as Virginians, so sure. uh, I was uh, was interested in your, your tenure back here for a, a few years, and uh, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background. You got it. Well, I... Uh... Well, back back in my college days, I, I had a summer internship for the Virginian Pilot newspaper, and I and that was the summer of 1994. Photographed for them for a few months, and uh, then when I graduated a couple years after that, I was lucky enough to get a staff uh, staff photographer position and uh, worked them uh, full time for three and a half years, and uh, got to know Virginia fairly well, and uh, especially. Uh, southeastern Virginia, Virginia, Hampton Roads area, Norfolk, Portsmouth, Virginia Beach, Chesapeake, Suffolk, that area. That was our main stopping ground, a little bit in the North Carolina as well. And, um, yeah, in fact, one of the things that we, I did, uh, with a, with a reporter, Earl Swift, who's become quite a well-known author of nonfiction books, is we traced the entire route of the James River from the place where it trickles out of the ground as a spring in Highland County down to the mouth of the Atlantic Ocean and uh, the base of the Chesapeake Bay and spent a month doing that and really got a major cross-section of the state of Virginia, the Commonwealth, there in that month-long trip that we took. Did you spend time uh, on the river itself 
or just tra- tracing along on the roadways or I I spent my time tracing along the roadways. Uh, Earl Swift actually was on the river the entire time, whether hiking along beside it when it was a little thin creek, down to sea kayaking when it was miles wide at the very end. So Earl was was on the river almost the entire time, or walking along beside it. And uh, it is my job to take pictures of course and then drive along as close as I could to wherever Earl was as his, uh, as his chase team. Yeah, it's, it's interesting um, for those, well, I start to say for those who are non-Virginians, but actually for people who are in Virginia, I think to a large degree, um, a lot of folks don't understand how far west the, the waters of the James go. That's right. Yeah, it's an amazing, it's an amazing riverway. I think it's the longest river contained in any one state. I remember correctly, and it meanders, yeah. and it's few hundred miles long as it, as it bends back and forth. Oh yeah, yeah, that, that's absolutely true. I, I guess when you were spending your time um, working for the Virginian pilot, you you never got to the point where, like the locals, you pronounce the name as if it had no R in it at all. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> not like yes, not like Virginia. No, I. Uh, I, I remained a Californian throughout and uh, pronounced the name as such. Even even for us mountain folk from the western part of the state, that whole Norfolk thing escapes us. <laughs> but I guess some of the things we say probably uh, are odd to them as well. So yeah. <laughs> we, won't, we won't cast well, any judgment on anyone. That's fine, yeah. I know I like how there's so many different... Uh, cultures and subcultures within any one given state, and it definitely goes through a big transition from the western end of the state to the eastern end of the state. So was your interest in photography something you always had, or did it develop when you were in college? Or Yeah, I began photographing for my, uh, for my high school yearbook back in the 1980s and really enjoyed that. And then uh, went off to UC Davis and began photographing for my student newspaper, and then uh, Spent most of my time doing that and wasn't so attentive to my grades. <laughs> so uh, by the time I finally graduated, I hadn't given myself a lot of options to pursue any other sort of career. And fortunately, I was reasonably good as a photographer, and that's what I that's what I continued to do and made a career of it. And um, yeah, so uh, wound up the Virginian pilot, and then summer of two thousand, I moved back home, moved back home to the Golden State, and. Uh, launched a wedding photography business to, to support myself and my family, and that gave me the, the time and freedom to also pursue my documentary photojournalism work as well, and gives me, gives me free time to do things like uh, be a planning commissioner here in Carmel-by-the-Sea. Yeah, that's, my daughter is, is not a professional photographer, but she, she's a good photographer, and, and my daughter-in-law actually is as well, and I have none of those skills. I I'm not sure I could even take a picture with a cell phone. <laughs> um, but I, in in being around them and seeing the things they do, um, it, it's amazing to me. It's you know, it's really not just a point and shoot kind of thing if you're going to do it well. Yes, no, it's definitely you have to you have to be thinking and you have to think quickly and and intuit a lot of things as well and uh, and be patient and really have to be mindful. It's kind of a Zen Buddhist notion and uh, 
this sounds a little snobby perhaps, but I think it definitely <laughs> applies where you really have to be paying attention to what you're seeing and really be in the moment, not thinking of anything else and observing it. And uh, sometimes people, like I'll be photographing, you know, uh, some aspect of something where someone's talking or giving a lecture or a speech or whatever, and then uh, people will ask me afterwards, well, what do they say? And I'll say, I don't, I don't know, because I was so focused on watching what was happening in the viewfinder as tuning everything else out. And it always seems that um, to get that, that shot you're looking for is, is, again, lost on me because it takes a lot of concentration, I think, and paying attention to detail. Because right. I guess you never really know when that moment's going to occur. That's well, that's right. Exactly. It's uh, you know, it's um, luck meets preparedness. That whole idea. Right. And and not to draw any kind of parallel between the two professions, but there is similarity in in paying attention to detail between photography and surveying, um, because that's something that we have to do as well. And. We get accused of being photographers all the time when we're out on the street. <laughs> How so? Just by, by interpreting or opposed to letting the mathematics do the work? Or how do you mean? No, just by people thinking that's what we're doing. Oh, yeah. If you're, if you're sitting up with a tripod. And, oh, and <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Everybody yep. wants to know if you're taking pictures. Right, exactly, and, with, a big, with a big view camera, sure. So we, we get that. You get that fairly often, that's for sure. That confusion, especially when you see these, probably see Leica written on the side of some of your total stations, <laughs> and then uh, that probably adds to their confusion. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, of course, there are lots of equipment manufacturers out there, and so people see different things. But it always seems to be that's one question. We we used to joke around that if people came by and asked us questions about were we taking pictures or whatever, we'd just tell them, they're getting ready to build an airport right across your house here, so. <laughs> no, excuse me, I'll get back to work. <laughs> yeah, right. So that that was always an interesting thing to do. Yeah. Well, as we go through the show today, we, we've got a few minutes left before our first break, but I just wanted to kind of get folks introduced to you and, and the things that, that you're doing um, in, your, in your photojournalism and the, your photography business as well. Sure. Um, so I don't know if there's more you want to add to that before we, we move on, but I certainly want to give you that opportunity. Well, I think one of the things that really uh, equipped me well for my my uh, volunteer role as a planning commissioner at Carmel and one of the things that, that has served me very well um, in creating this report about the golden rectangle is, um, is watching my friend Earl Swift and other really gifted writers, the Virginian pilot, uh, do their research. And they were, they're all, you know, Earl especially is a tremendously gifted researcher and watching how he would use local libraries and all sorts of other, uh, all sorts of other resources and really get way down in the weeds to find what he was looking for, sift that out, and then uh, find what's important in it and then include it in his writing. So, being around people like that really helped inspire me to not only try and be a good researcher, which I use on a regular basis with the Planning Commission, but also try to inspire me to become a better writer. And being exposed to all those really gifted writers in the Virginian pilot is something that I feel has helped my own writing in a limited way, but has also inspired me to try and hold myself to a higher bar when I am writing. And one of the things they strive to do with this report is, is try to make it fairly well written. And um, 
and a lot of that stems back from my time with that newspaper. Yeah, and and, and again, there's another parallel uh, between what you do and what surveyors do because the the real root of our success is how good we are at research. Right. And yeah. With, whether it's researching deed records or other documents or researching on the ground to find the information we need, um, it's it's certainly a, a parallel there because. Um, and people on the radio show get tired of hearing me say this, but I always talk about surveyors being detectives, puzzle workers, and mind readers, and and um, and that research part is a big part of that. So it's it's always good to talk to somebody else doing something totally different from what we're doing, but understanding the necessity for research. Some folks tend to tend to look at that as though it doesn't isn't isn't important, but it is. So oh, I'm sure. Ahead, we're about ten minutes from the break here, so. As we move forward, we'll come back and talk about that a little bit and then talk about how you've gotten into to writing the book eventually. So we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Okay, great. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And we're back with Ian Martin today. and uh, Nice conversation with David at the station on the break there, uh, there Ian, and, uh, and his time out where, where you are. Yeah. So moving forward, and, and we can continue, and we'll talk more about the city itself and about your experiences there, Um not only in your business, but as a planning commissioner. But this a while back, you sent me uh, a book. Actually, we tried to get it to me a couple different ways, and for some reason, I never could open it through the through the wonderful internet. So you were kind enough to send me a hard copy, which I always appreciate because I can keep hard copies and see what they look like more than I can go find files. So it sure, was good, but put it but, on itself. Uh, Ian, Ian has written a book called um, "A Town of Divine Proportion." the golden rectangles of Carmel by the sea and so maybe you could could tell us how you came to to write the book and and what the purpose is you got it well yeah after joining the planning commission uh, I I was looking around thinking about you know, the town and uh, 
which of course is one of my responsibilities as a planning commissioner. And, you know, and it occurred to me that I really didn't understand um, how people came to know part of Carmel by the Sea, really the, the southwestern section of Carmel by the Sea, as the golden rectangle. And so I did some internet research and, and found what, what people, often realtors, uh, described as the golden rectangle. And it included two of our main roads, which, which on a map or in a survey are nice straight lines. But then it also included, as the other two sides, um, two of our more, most curviest roads in town, uh, one being Scenic Road, which is a, just a stunningly gorgeous uh, roadway that, that goes along the beach bluff overlooking Carmel Beach. And that is not straight hardly at all. And yet that is one of the borders of this rectangle. As it's, as it's oftenly as it's often called, and the other is Santa Lucia, which is a large curving road uh, or a large curve that makes up that road, and that got me thinking: Is this the way that people always understood Carmel's Golden Rectangle to be? You know, the, is is this this shape that's really only rectangular in the broadest sense of the word? And as a photographer, I've heard it said incorrectly that a 35-millimeter photographic frame is a golden rectangle. And that's, it's close, but it's not, not really right. But at the very least, I understood that golden rectangle is an art theory concept. And, you know, I also knew that uh, Carmel, traditionally, especially in its earlier days, was a huge arts colony, a big arts colony where people... Um, with, with gifted painters from all over the world, uh, often classically trained, and, uh, were here doing their their tremendously powerful work. We even had painters as famous as Salvador Dali. He was a regular visitor here in Carmel, even participated in the Carmel Art Association. And we found one reference where he even judged the high school art competition. He was here, and um, and so... This uh, idea of the golden ratio, golden rectangle in art, is something that goes back to the Renaissance, and the golden section, that kind of thing, is another name for a golden ratio. And these are all ideas that have classically been attributed to uh, artists, and uh, artists are said to, to understand these ideas and sometimes incorporate them in their artwork. And so I thought, okay, well... Is there really a is there, is there a true golden rectangle in that sense here in this area that people understand as the golden rectangle? And so what I did is I took a screenshot of a Google map, I brought it into Photoshop, set it up to make you know I could drag my cursor across the screen and it would make a golden rectangle in a fixed proportion. And a golden rectangle is a rectangle whose sides are in a ratio of 1 to 1.618. And that, and so I set up the set up Photoshop to, to make those shapes. And sure enough, I found a true golden rectangle from a geometric point of view that mostly overlaps this area that people commonly know, that, know as the golden rectangle. And so... I feel that since there's this true geometric golden rectangle that overlaps this fairly curvy golden rectangle, it's, I think it's too much of a coincidence.
that that these that these shapes are there interrelating to each other, overlapping, largely overlapping each other. And so that that got me pretty excited when I figured that out. And then over the next several months I just spent a lot of time looking at the maps and and um and one thing I also found is that in another city corner from this golden rectangle, there's another golden rectangle also bordered by roadways. And this other golden rectangle is the, the, the size of this other golden rectangle and the size of this main golden rectangle, which I've been discussing, those sizes are both in the golden ratio to each other. And so that really got me stimulated and interested and um, wanted to drive me further in my research. But and in my research, you know, I found that there's a tremendous amount of baloney, malarkey, and just fairly crazy stuff out there about the golden ratio and about golden rectangles in general. And the Internet, of course, is full of it. And so what I wanted to do is get away from just looking at shapes on a map and find something more concrete uh, that would speak to whether or not those shapes are there on purpose or not. And what that meant for me is going to our fantastic local history room as part of the Carmel Library and looking at the town's original surveys. Because if those shapes are meant to be there, they would have to be reflected in the original surveys of the town. And so um, the, uh, the our, our really gifted local history room librarian helped me uh, find this map. It was the first... Uh, recorded survey of what would become Carmel by the Sea, and it was done in 1888. And like many surveys, every single lot size, road width is called out for with dimensions. And you can see that most block sizes are 200 feet long, or 200 feet wide by 400 feet long. And what you can do is you can go to these areas where these two golden rectangles are. And you can add up the dimensions on the survey and then mathematically arrive at these shapes simply by adding together and then dividing the lengths as those dimensions are stated on the survey, uh, which which I, I was rather impressed by because the main golden rectangle is 0.4% uh, away from being in perfection, and then the other golden rectangle, the smaller one, is 0.3% away from being uh, in perfection, and um, then the two sizes of the golden of the of the individual golden rectangles are are like you know one tenth of one percent away from being perfect in terms of the the way that they interrelate in their overall sizes, and so. I was using those surveys to ascertain this, and um, that really got me got me excited to, to do even more research. And I hope I haven't lost everybody with all my mathematical talk. But uh, I guess as an audience mainly mainly made up of surveyors, so I guess that's working for me. Oh yeah, I can promise you. <laughs> <laughs> Conversational for most people, I guess, in your audience. <laughs> Well, certainly, um, uh, surveyors are, are very.
very much interested in the, the topic that you're talking about and 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 all of the all of the intricacies that are involved in it. So don't worry at all about keeping your audience <laughs> uh, okay, good, good. interested because <laughs> that, that's good. That certainly won't be a problem. Great. So, and so the next, where did this so, lead you next? So, well, what happened next is that it made me really take a look at this map of 1888, and then what I found is this. What I found is this map of 1888 can be neatly organized, basically, into five individual golden rectangles, um, edge to edge, and those five golden rectangles are either within two-tenths of one percent of being perfect, so one to 1.618, within two-tenths of one percent of, of being perfect to that ratio, and the others are 0.3%, you know, and then it's most, then the most basic building block of this, of this survey is our typical block size here in Carmel, which is 400 feet by 200 feet, and one of the things that, that struck me as unusual about looking at this map, and something I had not been aware before, is that all of the north-south running roads are either 50 feet wide or they're 60 feet wide. And so you go from the, from the eastern edge of the map to the western edge of the map, and they tend to, they, they alternate between 50 feet wide, then the next road to the west is 60 feet wide, next one's 50 feet wide, they go 50, 60, 50, 60, 50, 60, and what happens if you take a 200 by 400 foot block and you make a border with three 50 foot roads and then one 60 foot road, you get a little golden rectangle that's within 0.3% away from being that perfect ratio. And so from the biggest aspects of the map to the smallest aspects of the map, the whole thing could be organized in golden rectangles. And one of the things that really puts it over the top is the history of this town. And back when that first map was made in 1888, there was a land developer, and this land developer who commissioned that survey wanted Carmel by the Sea, or what would become Carmel by the Sea, he wanted it to be a Catholic summer resort. And it was going to be a town devoted to Catholic worship. Um, he was excited by the presence of the Carmel Mission, and he saw all of the tourism that that was already bringing to town at the end of the 19th century. And he himself was a man who was deeply steeped in Catholicism, had been educated um, at an orphanage by Franciscan friars, you know, and uh, he had attended the rededication of the Carmel Mission in 1884 when the restoration of the mission began, and, and he thought, okay, you know what, this place should be a, a Catholic town, a Catholic summer resort, and he struck a deal with I the person who actually... Ian, but- that that may be a good place for us to stop, and we'll come back and pick up on that. After okay, great. We're going to break, we'll go to break here for uh, for a couple minutes. Okay. Attention, surveyors! Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. 
the Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Shonsted products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.shonsted.com. Shonsted, the best just got better. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not... Get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. We're back again with, excuse me, Ian Martin. Uh, I was just telling Ian uh, on the break, I'm, I'm glad he's able to carry the conversation today because my talking is going to be a little tough. But we, you were talking about the history and figuring out how the layout was all put together, and let's continue on with that. You got it. So anyway, I so I basically the the eighteen eighty eight map appears to be driven the design principle behind the eighteen eighty eight map seems to be driven by the golden ratio and trying to, to pack full of golden rectangle, as far as I can tell. And well why would they do that? Well, when that survey was commissioned, the land developer, a man named Santiago Duckworth, he was hoping that this town, which he called Carmel City, was going to be a town devoted to Catholic worship. And in my research, um, I found that the idea of the golden ratio is an idea that some people in history uh, believe is a holy concept. Um, the mathematician Luca Pacioli, who was uh, uh, who in 1509 published a book called The Divine Proportion, is largely dedicated to the golden ratio. He got his friend Leonardo da Vinci to illustrate it, and it was really a crossover moment where some of these more arcane mathematical concepts uh, became accessible to artists, architects, and others as a way to incorporate the golden ratio into their artwork and in their designs. And there's a really terrific book that's been the cornerstone of a lot of my research on the Golden Ratio by uh, Mario Livio. And his book is called The Golden Ratio, The Story of Five, The World's Most Astonishing Number. It's been a very helpful book for me because, like I was saying earlier, there's so much malarkey about the Golden Ratio online and elsewhere. But this is a really 
a well well founded, well uh, thought out book that brings a great deal of skepticism to the subject of the golden ratio. And the stuff that survives Livio's scrutiny is all that much more compelling and interesting for the scrutiny that he's put it under. And when he wrote the book, he was the head of the science division of the Space uh, Telescope Institute, which is, based, which is basically the organization that runs the Hubble Space Telescope. So he brings a scientist's skepticism and scrutiny to the subject, and um, it's been a very helpful uh, tool for me and, um, in, in doing this report. And his book talks about Luca Pacioli, this Franciscan friar who wrote this, this uh, uh, the Divine Proportion book. Um, and Luca Pacioli believed that, you know, the, basically the golden ratio for a long list of reasons is a metaphor for God. And he was not alone in that supposition either. Uh, Johannes Kepler one of the most famous astronomers of all time, he also believed that this is a, a holy concept, a mathematical tool that God used to create the universe. And so the fact that the golden ra- ratio, the golden rectangle, show up so much in this, this map for this Catholic town, uh, you know, I think that the developer and his surveyor uh, were folding the golden ratio into this map as this wonderful symbolic gesture, as possibly as a prayer of mathematical devotion or as a clever device um, to create a foundation on which to build a town dedicated to Catholic worship. So there are these historical precedents in finding this mathematical concept holy, especially in Catholicism, and here's this, this town devoted to Catholic worship that's built around this idea of the golden ratio. It's, it's road grid is built from the idea of the golden ratio. So finding that, that historical precedent in that research creates a motivation of why you would do this if you were creating a Catholic town. In your research, did you happen to run across any information about whether the same concept may have been used someplace else in the country? I mean, obviously it was used in in ancient architecture and that kind of thing, and maybe we talk about that a little bit. But I just was sure. curious if you if you found anything that that gave rise to someone thinking perhaps the same uh, thought process was used in in other locations. See, that's a great question, and 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 I have looked around um, online, certainly not in an exhaustive way, because I was eager to find okay, are there any other towns or cities around the world that use this as a, as, as a road grid, as, use the golden ratio in laying out the town? I really could not find any. I found one offhand reference um, to Pierre Lanfant, the guy who designed the National Mall. Someone says that, okay, well, he used the golden ratio. I imported a drawing of the National Mall in Photoshop. I really could not replicate those findings. And, you know, there's a lot of instances where people are squinting hard at maps claiming to find the golden ratio, but I just couldn't, I, you know, I only found one other instance, and that was Pierre Lafont in the National Mall. And, I, you know, as far as I can tell, I, well, I, I've not been able to find any other uses of the golden ratio in, in, uh, in, a, in a town map or in a town plan. Um, you know, and one of the things that I did is I looked at about 25 uh, small California towns, uh, that had pronounced road grids, you know, meaning 10 or more uniform blocks, 
and I found a couple of uh, towns that that had you could you could kind of trace golden rectangles on part of the town, and using GIS uh, uh, government website mapping tools or Sanborn maps, I could come in within one or two percent of golden ratio, which is pretty good, but with the maps I'm finding, with the, with the 1888 map of Carmel City, um, those golden rectangles are coming within 0.2%, 0.3%, and you can cover the whole map of 1888 with these golden rectangles, but in these other instances in these other towns with 1% or 2% golden rectangles, you can only cover like a portion of the town, which suggests that they just emerged on their own accidentally opposed to some sort of deliberate intent, which I think was the case here in Carmel-by-the-Sea. Yeah, the, you mentioned the Sanborn maps. Those are pretty interesting. Yeah, they're, was, they're wonderful. Yeah, I was. we did a project uh, several years ago with the Library of Congress, a mapping uh, exhibit, and in working with them and going down and going through their archives and finding what they had, I was really intrigued by those maps that they have. It's just it's yeah. amazing how those things were put together. Yes, it's an amazing... I mean, I wonder if anybody's ever written a, a popular history of, of the Sanborn Company and the maps they created. It's pretty wonderful stuff. Yeah, yeah, it would be. I don't I don't recall ever seeing that. It might exist. Maybe some of our listeners may know, but, <laughs> but, but I, I don't know about it. So as the town was developed, um, was there uh, some progression of did we start near the sea and move inward or how did that all occur so basic yeah sure so so um so Santiago Duckworth who was the he was the land developer the guy who had the vision for creating the Catholic summer resort here he went to a man named Honor Eskol and uh who actually owned the land and he struck a deal with Eskol that gave Duckworth, the developer, permission to subdivide and then sell off the land. And so they they had an agreement, and uh, Eskol, um, you said, okay, you can sell this chunk of land, and they used the, uh, the public land survey system to identify where this land was, it was roughly unbounded wilderness when these guys went to work on the place, and, um, and so identified it as... You know, Section 12, Township 16, Range 1 West of the Mount Diablo Meridian, and so, so roughly half a Section 12, and um, so roughly half a square mile plus a little jog into into a rancho, one of these Spanish land grant ranches, um, and so that was that was the the land that uh, Duckworth had permission of the landowner to subdivide and to sell. And um, and it was it was you know a fair distance from the ocean, um, not not a huge distance, but maybe uh, you know, several hundred yards away from the ocean, and um, and it was two hundred yards. The outside edge was of this land deal was two hundred yards from the Carmel Mission, and we know it's two hundred yards because that's the number the surveyor called that out right on the survey that this this land is. This edge of the land is 200 yards from the from the Carmel Mission, and stated so on the map. And that's how important the Carmel Mission was to the enterprise. And um, and so, uh, but then what happened is in you know in, in the late towards the end of the 19th century, 
there was uh, a recession and and people were losing their shirts and Santiago Duckworth was losing his and he had to get out and he was aware that there were there were a couple of other people in town buying up lots one of these men uh, Frank Devendorf uh, was one and so Duckworth went to Frank Devendorf and said I need to get out and I'm happy to trade you my my interests here in Carmel City uh, and I'll trade you some land for whatever you have and Frank Devendorf said well I've got some land in Stockton and Duckworth says I'll take it and so they traded that land and then Frank Devendorf largely took over the development of Carmel with another man, Frank Powers, uh, who was also buying up a great deal of land here in Carmel by the Sea, and what would become Carmel by the Sea. And together, those two men formed the Carmel Development Company. Uh, Frank Devendorf was the, the, the main the main guy. He was the public face out in front. He was a uh, he was a, a seasoned land developer and subdivided land and sold it around uh, South Bay, um, Morgan Hill, Gilroy, uh, communities about an hour north of here. And so he really understood what it took to, to take a piece of land, subdivide it, and sell it. And so he took it from there along with, with Frank Powers. Um, and uh, the first thing that he did is he took this pattern that that uh, Duckworth had established the 200 by 400 foot blocks, and he continued it, but not entirely. You know, he would he set up a row of these blocks um, to the to west of town and to the east of town, and just out of these 200 400 by blocks, one after another, until there were enough of them, and that then became that other golden rectangles. So he took a pattern established by Duckworth and then, and continued it, and that in turn closed the boundaries on this main large southern golden rectangle. And whether or not he knew what he was doing when he closed the boundaries on the southern rectangle, you know, we'll probably never know. But he added just enough of those blocks to close those boundaries. And then the next road beyond was a large sweeping curve of a road very not rectangular, and then he would take a lot of the other. We're going to have to we're going to have to go to break again, Ian. Sorry. Okay. We no can problem. pick up with that curvy curvy road when we come back. We'll be right back. Okay, sure. Attention, surveyors! Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800 438 
888-3387 or go to quickstake.com. That's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.seanstedt.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. As is somewhat normal with our shows, we always run out of time before we get everything we want to have said. So we got another 13-minute segment for Ian to talk to us. You were talking about the, this laying out of the lots, and um, maybe we can follow up on that a little bit, maybe talk about this W.C. Little who did that 1888 uh, survey, and then... Um, you had an interesting point. We were talking on the phone about how the roads don't necessarily follow the right-of-way lines, so that might be interesting, too. Sure. So just to finish the, the one thought about Frank Devendorf, so, yeah, so he was he erased a lot of these other golden rectangle-making blocks of 200-foot by 400-foot uh, blocks in certain parts of the town, but the first thing he did was use them, which then created that southern golden rectangle that interlinks with that other northern golden rectangle that I, that I mentioned earlier. Um, but, yeah, Walter Colton Little, who was the man who actually created the survey of 1888 at the behest of the land developer, Santiago Duckworth, is a really interesting guy. He was, uh, you know, he was, he was born in Monterey, um, and, and he was that city's first uh, civil engineer and... Um, he was brought in by uh, by Duckworth to create this map of 1888, and we don't have too much information about him other than a Monterey Pencil Herald article uh, interview that was conducted with him in 1947, about three years before he died. And um, and he doesn't mention Carmel by the Sea at all in that piece. But uh, looking at looking at what we know about him uh, suggests that little could have had a, a pretty big hand in the development of, of Carmel City beyond what normally would be asked of a surveyor from a developer. And the reason why I believe that is that, well, he not only was uh, Monterey's first civil engineer, and Monterey was a major California city, like um, in, it was the, uh, it was the first, you know, in, in Alta California was, in, in effect, the capital of California, of Alta California, and so late 19th century, uh, really important hub. And um, Little was the city engineer, and Little also fire, filed the first American map of uh, of the city of Monterey after a transition from Mexico into the United States. Uh, and so, and also Little had worked for the railroad. And uh, as, a, as an assistant supervisor position, and one of the things Duckworth, the land developer, was hoping for is that the railroad company, that same railroad company, would bring a railroad line to Carmel and thus greatly in, increase the value of the lots that he was trying to sell. So little, so little was 
quite possibly in a position to, to give a, advice on what a map of Carmel City would, should look like, and Duckworth, I think, would have been very receptive to what he had to say. And um, the other interesting things we know about Walter Colton Little is that he's described in an 1890 profile in passing as having exceptional qualities as a scholar and known to have those since boyhood. And um, and then another thing we know about Walter Colton Little is his son, who went on to also become a civil engineer, and his son won all sorts of academic accolades from the University of California, including the University of California Regents Gold Medal, who's Phi, uh, Phi Beta Kappa, and had won all these other accolades from all these other engineering societies around the country. And so it suggests that these, these men were, this family was really smart and greatly loved surveying and civil engineering. Um, those two pieces of information taken together. So the father and the son both love uh, civil engineering, as far as I can tell. And one of the things I'm trying to do now is, is go on and see what else I can find about Walter Colton Little. Um, and that's, that's another direction I'm taking my research in. Great. Well, I'm, we've got uh, eight minutes or so left in the show, so I was just curious. Um, I was going to ask you at some point if all this information you've put together has any impact on things that happen in your planning commissioner role, or do you run into issues that relate back to these maps or anything like that? Well, it's a great question. And one of the things that, uh, that, with, that Frank Sevendorf did when he took over the development of a town is he would take these, these, right, these legal right-of-ways as defined by the surveys, which often are perfectly straight lines, but then he would grade a roadway inside those boundaries that curved and meandered and seldom went out to the outside edges of the right-of-way. So typically, you, we're on, the, on the road that I live, I live on Guadalupe Street, and that, as surveyed, is a 60-foot right-of-way, but most places the roadway itself is only graded out to 20, 25 feet. And, you, and, and the roadway curves and meanders and bends as it goes through that straight line channel in a way that really gives our town a great deal of its charm and its character. And what you have between the graded roadway and the private property adjacent are these large margins of forest land. And that was an important part of the aesthetic that Devendorf was going for, is a town that harmonized with nature, that preserved a lot of the natural feel of a woodland and he's credited for, for planting or causing to be planted a, a tremendous number of trees, which created this urban forest, which, which is really a fundamental part of Carmel's look and feel. Um, so, do you so, ever get do you ever get uh, confusion when people want to do landscaping on their property or do something? Oh yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of confusion about where people's property line begins, where the public property begins and ends, and it is a situation where it's not at all obvious to people, and making the use of uh, professional surveyors very important if anybody ever wants to build anything here in town. Of course, it's very important to have those survey lots found because as you're walking down the road, it's really not at all clear necessarily on where public property begins and private property begins or ends. And um, 
And another legacy that we that we work with is the the size of the lots. The most prevalent lot size, uh, which is a hundred feet by forty feet, that goes into those two hundred foot by four hundred foot blocks. That was all laid down by Walter Colton Little and the land developer uh, Duckworth back in eighteen eighty eight, and that's the legacy that we're working with today. And so when you have those twenty forty by hundred foot blocks packed into a into a 200 foot by 400 foot uh, uh, block, you know, that's a pretty, pretty densely, those, those properties are pretty densely packed together. And so one of the things you look at in the planning commission is trying to preserve uh, people's privacy from each other whenever possible, um, looking at how people's views are impacted, um, and uh, just working with, a, with those pretty densely packed uh, properties, those pretty densely packed houses, and yet still trying to maintain that wild forest and feel, for which is such an important uh, characteristic of the town. That that makes perfect sense, and, and I can, having been a planning commissioner myself years ago, I can understand the, the difficulties of dealing with all those situations. <laughs> sure. <laughs> because oftentimes reality is not part of the discussion. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> Sometimes it's not, but we try and make it so whenever we can. Yeah. So, um, what's your next project? I know you mentioned a couple of things there. Are you are you going to look for another another book to do, or I think what, what I want to do is there's a few there's a few other things I need to uh, uh, to do on this project. A few a few loose ends that still like to run down. Um, you know, I, I've got some documentary photojournalism that I that I want to get back to work on. It's not related to this so much, but yeah, there's there's uh, one of the things I wanted to explore more thoroughly is what was happening and with Catholicism at the time the town was founded. Uh, pope Leo the uh, Thirteenth, who was the pope when this town was founded, he had issued an encyclical called Patronis Patris that. Um, helped that the basically said that science and Catholicism are not at odds, and that in fact, thank you to the teachings of uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas, um, science and faith could benefit each other, and that touched off this whole uh, period of of Catholic scientific inquiry, of which. You know, and, and, and so doing something clever mathematically with road grid for a Catholic town would fit nicely into that whole zeitgeist. Uh, but one of the things I want to do is just try and unpack that idea a little bit further and look deeper into that. Uh, but yeah, so those, that's this is kind of this is kind of it for now. I just want to you know cross the T's and dot the I's on the report that I just created, and um, and then I'm sure I'll have other things I want to get out there and research more of. Uh, Carmel by the Sea has a really rich history that you can get your arms around fairly easily because the European aspect of it goes back to the mission, but really for the Carmel-by-the-Sea we understand today really begins in the later part of the 19th century, so you can get your arms around it, but within that comparatively brief period of time, there's a lot of detail and a lot of density and a lot of first-hand sources and newspaper articles that uh, can be researched and drill down into to come up with a really rich and textured history that's really fascinating to 
to reach this plenty of opportunities to unpack our town's history and bring a lot of these really interesting things to light. Well, I would think it's 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 certainly a laudable thing to to do to have the dedication that you have for your hometown and and looking for more information about its roots and wanting to share that with other people. That's that that's an unbelievably difficult task, at least from the perspective of someone who doesn't have the patience to do it. <laughs> yeah. But um, it's certainly uh, certainly an, a, a great endeavor to to learn more. That's one of the things I think we we've lost in our country is our our appreciation for our history. And uh, so to have have this type of work going on, I think is really important. Well, thank you for that. No, I thank you. I appreciate that, and it's something I. I feel compelled to do, and I almost can't help myself sometimes. <laughs> you know, to have these history books in front of me, or the the local history room is so great here, and it has lots of lots of untapped or or lightly tapped sources of firsthand uh, information. It's uh, it's always a temptation to go down there and, and and check something out. Well, at least it keeps you busy, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I've got if you my, don't have my, anything else to do. <laughs> oh well, I've got my 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 loving, very patient family who's endured my you know this, somewhat of an obsession with the golden rectangle. So my wife and few daughters have been really supportive and really patient with me as I as I've uh, drilled down into this stuff, which has well, taken a little I more than a year. I appreciate so. you being on the show with me today. It's been fantastic to have you. It's a great topic, and maybe as you do more research, we can get you to come back and join us again sometime. I would love that. Thank you been excellent and again thank you so much for being with me i appreciate it a lot oh it's my pleasure Kurt. thank you for having me take care you're listening to america's webradio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio thank you for listening